Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Adam Shaw, a very experienced exec in the sports and media industry. Adam also had a really interesting beginning to his career, and he trusted in his abilities, which is something I think we all could do a little more of. It just takes guts. A great conversation ahead that really focuses on how careers are long and how everyone has their own path. I love thinking about innovation. We're looking at what preschool my 10-month-old daughter will be going to when she's two. It's crazy how competitive everything is in LA, but that's how our society does it, so you have to go along. Anyway, we looked at one last week, and I asked what innovative things they do. And the old person who runs the school, she kind of took offense to the, qu- to the question. And that's natural. She's been doing things a certain way for her entire career. They've worked. They've got her to a position of power. So why would she want to disrupt things? She wouldn't. That's not how our brains work. We look for comfort and familiarity. We're creatures of habit, as they say. For innovation to take place, though, there would have to be a new disruptive school that enters the market and delivers a better experience. Then all the existing schools would either need to adapt to the better way of running their school or suffer as no new people want to come to their school. So that's great. The issue is that markets are competitive. It's difficult to build something from scratch and get a new school off the ground. No matter how transformative or disruptive your model could be, society won't believe that you can do it until you actually do. That's the core reason why startups are hard. You have to continue showing signal that things are working while having little to no resources. You have to be creative, scrappy, and just accomplish in the face of extreme adversity for literally everything that you do. For PayClub, we have to convince investors, convince banking partners, and convince users. For investors and banks, we need to show that we understand the market better than anyone. We understand the regulations and trends and our users, but that's not enough. We need to actually show numbers, growth. For users, we have to change an existing behavior. And yes, the current behavior is broken and sucks, but back to the original thought here, changing the way that people do things is hard, but we persist. That's what good startups do. You find a way to overcome the incredible challenges, and yeah, you better believe that there will be a big reward for doing so. Okay, let's get into the interview. Adam Shaw, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming over today. Thanks for having me, Alex. Yeah, you are like an LA media guy. You're an investor. Like 
you've had success in your business in your business life. I'm sure you've had success in your personal life too. We'll talk about <laughs> uh, maybe maybe not. Um, happy to talk about whatever you want to talk about, all of it, none of it. But let's get it started. I don't know. You graduated college. Like, when did you become the guy you are today? When did that When did that happen? You know, there's a there's a funny story. I, I had. Pretty far into my career, someone asked me the question of when did you realize that you want to be where you are today? And, at the, you know, to sort of quickly summarize, I, I was an executive in the sports media space. Um, and I wasn't sure what the answer was. And then I, I remembered something that, that happened my, uh, my senior year in college. Um, I applied to probably 20 or 30 different on-campus jobs. I was at Yale. And uh, I really had no idea what the future held or, or what I wanted to be. And it was a bit, a bit distressing. It was, um, you know, I, I was following the, the path of least resistance. I was an economics and math major. And so all of the management consulting firms and investment banks that recruited on campus were very interested. And they both seem interesting. But even though I was an economics major, I really did not understand what investment banking was or, or banking for that matter. Um, it was all just... You know, something on paper as opposed to really understanding it. Um, I hadn't had any real practical summer experience. So these were all just terms and words and people without really understanding what it was. Um, and I went through the interview process and ended up with a number of choices. And I sort of narrowed it down to the Boston Consulting Group, if I did management consulting, and uh, um, Goldman Sachs, if I was going to go into investment banking. And I was having a tough time decide because everyone I talked to said there's a very different lifestyle choices and that your day-to-day -day will be very different. Um, but I sort of, I, I wanted to better understand what was going to set me down a path that, that I wanted to follow. Um, and the reason I remember all of this is to try and help me sort out what was the best direction for me. I called a guy named Seth Abraham, who was the president of HBO Sports. Um, and I thought that's the job that I wanted. It was sort of somehow in my mind, I said, you know, I want to be the, in the guy in charge of putting on the big prize fights and Wimbledon and whatever else was on HBO Sports at the time. Um, and so I actually found his number. Uh, A cold call. And cold called him. Okay, I like that. And I got his, uh, his secretary on the phone and I kind of explained who I was, hoping that maybe someday he'll call me back and... She said, hold on one second, hold for Seth. The guy could not have been any nicer. He talked to me for about 20 minutes. Uh, I told him sort of my dilemma, and he essentially said, look, you can't go wrong. These are two great companies, and you have a long, long career ahead of you, and you do not have to find your absolute niche day one. So, you know, if I had to decide, I would, and you don't know what you want to do, I would say do management consulting because it lays a very, very flat groundwork for so many different things that you want to do. Whereas banking is a little bit more towards a specific direction of, of going into being a banker. And that ultimately um, set me on my way. So the, the reason I tell that story is because I'd forgotten about that and thought, oh, maybe I just ended up here by chance. And then I was like, you know what? Actually, when I was in college, this was something that I'd already... You know, seemed preordained. So that's right. Uh, back to this phone call. Have you ever talked to him since? I haven't. I've, I've I've thought on. He's long retired, and I've thought on several occasions. You know, somehow tipping my nod, the nod to right. him. And, and well, this and is it now. Now the podcast will there, get him back. There you go. If anyone knows Seth Abraham and they're listening to this, uh, he had a a very big effect on somebody. I have a couple different 
parts of my career where, where successful senior people were very selfless and helpful. You know, and that those types of times um, are impactful and you remember them and there ends up being a, a pay it forward type mentality that um, I think a lot of people um, absorb and then uh, carry on. And I think that's important. So this was one of the first ones in that sense. So if anyone knows him, please pass along my, my uh, eternal gratitude. Great. So that's an enviable position to be choosing between GS and BCG. Can't really go wrong, as, as, as this guy said. Um, so fine, you choose, you choose BCG, and you're basically looking to have the most amount of opportunities open to you at the completion of one of these couple-year programs. So you, you do it. You don't know you're going to be a consultant. You don't really want to be a banker. You go do it, and what happens? So I had a, an amazing time at BCG. Um, the, the, it's the, the way that they, you know, their, their product is their people. And so they treat you very well. And I, I learned a lot. It was very, very different than, you know, the, 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 all the years of schooling I had done. And so it was the first practical experience I had. It was a very academic environment, which was very comfortable uh, and very intellectual. Um, but, they, you know, they, they teach you all of the fundamentals you, you're going to need to, to go out into the workspace. Uh, and I had told them... Um, that I, if possible, I'd love to do things in the media space. And they were very accommodating. And um, there was a guy named uh, Arnon Mishkin, who's, uh, who I worked for on a, on a case where Children's Television Workshop, you might not know that name, um, but that you know their product, which is Sesame Street. And they had created, um, accidentally, a huge hit in Barney, which was the lead out to Sesame Street. And uh, they didn't own Barney. So they started to realize, okay, you know, public broadcasting is using Sesame Street to launch other products that we don't have a, a say in. What should we do? And so one of my very first big projects was really understanding what are the options for a media company, especially you know, a nonprofit in that case. Uh, and that got me really smart and knowledgeable about the cable world, really understanding af affiliate fees and distribution and the difference between cable and broadcast and the dual revenue model. And um, it was it was a, a great education into understanding the, the nuts and bolts of the, the business model of cable television. That's great. Um, so this is this is interesting. Like you got to kind of carve out a industry niche for yourself while at BCG. And, and I guess if you're a good worker and you put up your hand and say, I like media, then they'll try to get you media deals and you've got Sesame Street, so that's cool. And you start to get an understanding of the television landscape. And now it's coming up on two years and you're like, ah, I don't, am I going to leave here? Am I going to stay here? Am I going to go to business school? How'd you think about that the next decision? So I felt like the, the time I had there was um, really valuable in, in, in learning the the ABCs of um, of business, and I had had a you know a, a very extensive academic career, and from what I could gather, a lot of what you learn in your first couple of years of consulting is somewhat uh, redundant with what you're going to learn in business school. Yeah, I also was so happy being in the workforce. I loved working. It was. It just agreed with me, whereas, you know, I used to stress when I was in school. I, I put a lot of pressure on myself, and 
I just didn't have, there was nothing that was really driving me to go get an MBA. I felt like I, don't, I didn't know if I needed it. Um, and I kind of knew what I wanted to do at this point. So yeah. I said, I'll, I'm just going to go out and get a great job. If you can do that without an MBA, fantastic. Well, that was the plan. Yeah. So believe it or not, this was, there was a time when there wasn't the internet. So in order to uh, look for job opportunities, I wrote you know, handwritten letters. I, I found alumni books of you know, people I knew who were working at various companies that, that were ideal. So you know, I looked at ESPN and NBC and Fox Sports and some of the music labels. And Was this all in New York? Uh, I was looking. You, you didn't care. I didn't care. Uh, you know, across the country, um, and these were you know essentially cold yeah. letters. Um, and I thought to myself, wow, with Yale and, and BCG on, on my resume, and being a young, hungry kid, this should be, you know, some some this should be fruitful in some way. I didn't know exactly where the the opportunities would lie, um, and I did not get a single response, not one. I think I probably sent out fifteen or twenty. Uh, correspondences and not one. Uh, and at the same time, a number of opportunities started uh, coming to me because there were a lot of companies that were looking for young analysts and in, in a BCG, you know, two-year BCG guy uh, is, is very desirable. Um, you know, things that were in banking or, or working in consumer products. Uh, I remember Guinness Brewery was looking for a an analyst, um, but none of them were what I wanted to do. Right, and and so I was I was in a, a little bit of a a tough spot um, because I sort of thought I had found my my path, and none of these jobs that were being presented that I could make myself available for did I see myself uh, advancing my career in. So I was a little bit of a crossroads, and um, I decided at that point there was no reason to rush. And uh, I didn't want to force it. Um, so I did something which <laughs> uh, looks uh, smart in hindsight, but at the time people thought was um, incredibly rash and uh, sort of questioned my decision making. But uh, I left BCG and became a, uh, a tennis pro at Club Med, and, um, which is not, by the way, not easy to do. It was. Almost as difficult as, <laughs> as getting getting a role okay. at Yale or BCG. Who doesn't want to be a, a GO at, at Club Med? Um, so I ended up doing two seasons teaching tennis. Where? Uh, first in Extapa, Mexico, okay. and then the second in, in Turks and Caicos in the Caribbean, which was, I mean, it was paradise on earth. Um, and so, you know, my, my days were between teaching tennis and organizing tournaments. It was learning how to barefoot water ski, learning, yeah. learning how to sail, um, golfing, and uh, a lot of scuba diving. So it was, it was pretty amazing. Um, and really, really nice guests came down. I, I, every week I would meet really interesting people. Uh, and they thought it was, they, they sort of took uh, a liking to the, you know, the Ivy League kid who sort of said, I'm going to uh, do something different. Um, you know, and then about a year into it, um, I was uh, playing tennis with a guy named Mike Lang, who was a, a senior guy at Disney, and uh, heard my story and said, you know what, I, uh, and I told him that uh, my dream job was, was working for Fox, and I was also really interested in Disney. Um, you know, and a lot of people would come down there and, and tell you things, you know, they'd want to sort of be on your good side. And so I, I didn't know how much 
uh, credibility to give it. But he's like, all right, I think this actually could be really interesting. I happen to uh, be very close with a guy who runs business development for Fox, and I know the people at Strap Planning at Disney. Uh, and Mike arranged for interviews with both. Really? So Disney flew me out, um, and uh, I interviewed with both. And, and uh, there was a guy named Jeff Shell who was running business development for Fox, who I recognized was a superstar. Um, and he made an offer, and uh, I moved out to L.A. <laughs> That's incredible, Adam. That I mean, it's like a fairy tale. Yeah, it's... Uh, and, and then, of course, once that happened and I was, you know, in, in the perfect spot for me, um, everyone's like, oh, yeah, that was, you knew what you were doing. That was a really smart decision. You know, uh, no one knows what they're doing. Exactly. It, I, I, somebody, I forget who said, you know, you make your good luck. Um, and then I think that's what happened in this case is, yes, it was a stroke of great fortune. But Right, but you were going to be successful no matter what you're doing. And if you're a tennis pro in Extapa or you know, at BCG, you're going to figure it out. Yeah. So you figured it out. So I think there's a couple things, you know, to takeaways from that. You know, one is it's not a race. And I've, I've realized this several times over my career. There's this culture that kind of comes with, you know, what's your GPA relative to somebody else's? Or if you're an investment banking class, where do you, you know, where are you in the ranks? And I think over the long term, the most successful people aren't those that are, you know, fighting necessarily to be at the top. It's the people who really figure out what they're good at, you know, and, and, and pursue that in a way that they're comfortable doing. Um, and so, you know, taking a pause sometimes, I think, is a very healthy thing. I agree. Life is long. Yes. Careers are long. Yes. Careers are, are, are very long and very circuitous. Um, there was a mentor I had once who said the, a similar thing to me, and I think he was in his early 50s, and he said something along the lines of, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be. Uh, and that resonated with me. Like it, you know, I, I still think about that today. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So come back from paradise and you go to Fox and you're on the, you're on the lot in Century City. Yep. Um, and working in their like corp dev group across all, all of the business or like in the TV group. So I started in the, in the TV group uh-huh. um, and a lot of it was really on the broadcast television side, but the, the, the time Fox was really looking to uh, expand its, its cable presence. And, um, you know, there was an interest in creating a, a, a Fox network in most of the major uh, verticals. So, um, you know, sports, general entertainment, um, news, uh, you know, across the board. Right. And so, you know, around that time, Fox Sportsnet got um, launched, FX, uh, shortly after National Geographic Channel. Um, Fox News. There was it was a, a very uh, a very strong growth period for Fox in and around cable television and, and sports especially, and so that's really where we found ourselves is um, you know, acquiring networks, launching networks, operating networks, you know, figuring out the strategy of what really belonged in the in the cable portfolio. Mm-hmm. And how long did you do this for? Um. You know, Fox in total was seven years. There were, an, um, I worked for Jeff uh, two different times, I think, for a total of almost five years. Also worked for a period for Peter Ligori and, and Lindsay Gardner. Peter was running FX, uh, which was a really worthwhile experience. This was the time that FX rebranded itself uh, to the, you know, really high profile um, 
you know, the, the HBO of, of, of basic cable, I right. think, is how we thought of ourselves then, uh, which really hadn't been done before. You know, a network really rebranding itself as the premier general entertainment network. Um, and Peter had a, a head of entertainment named Kevin Riley. Um, you know, and it was a great time for FX. And it, we launched The Shield and Nip Tuck, and that was the start of, I think, the, the evolution of FX into what it is today. And so, Adam, how were you able to go from kind of group to group, like, internally? How do you how do? You, do that? Um, you know, I, I think it helped that Jeff was a great boss and a great mentor. And I, there was a, a sensibility that if you were in business development and strategy, at some point you wanted to try to get more of an operating role. Right. That's still the case. People go to those corp dev jobs to try to jump out and they see some something interesting happening. Yeah. And so I think there was a, the first operating role I, I took was on the affiliate sales side, really focused on distribution. Uh, you know, once Fox had all these different cable networks, especially the RSNs were the regional sports networks, which we called RSNs, were a very complicated business. Um, and you had different agreements in every major market with the cable operators and or the satellite providers in those particular markets. Um, and it was really, really worthwhile on really getting down into the nitty-gritty of really understanding those deals. And everybody has read about or been part of uh, a cable network getting dropped from one of these big cable companies, you know, Time Warner drops... ESPN and its front page news on the New York Times, uh, to really understand what's going on behind the scenes there, I think is really valuable. And so we, you know, we were living and breathing those types of deals all the time. So that was the first operating role. And then I actually went back into, into biz dev. Uh, I had another opportunity w- with Jeff at sort of a, an elevated status, and I did that. Um, and then the final role at, at Fox was working for Peter at FX. That's great. So, okay, now you've made it into entertainment, you're following your passion, you're working in television and sports, it's cool, what do you, are you like fulfilled, are you thinking this is good, I like working for a big company, I like what I'm doing, or things aren't quite right, I'm looking for something else? Uh, It's actually a great question based on the timing. Right around this time is when the dot-com boom was happening. So, you know, I had friends who were flocking to eToys and... Um, I'm probably getting rich. Uh, yes. Um, I was trying to think of the name of the grocery delivery uh, business that was the, yeah, the time. I, something with Van in it. Um, anyway, everybody remembers those days. And, uh, you know, I, w- I was in a very, very great place working for incredibly smart people and, and very happy in my role. But there was a little sense of... Um, of envy yeah. on, on the tech, of, the tech bug, like people get that. It's, you know, it, it was hard not to. Um, and as far as I went, was I came up with um, an idea that I thought was a fantastic idea, which I'll I, I might get to later. Um, and I thought a little bit about: is it worth you know leaving this you know really structured? well-developed role that I have to go take a chance. Right. Um, and so actually I talked to a lot of people um, about the business and about starting a business and ultimately decided that um, I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. And around that time, things started to crash and that made the decision pretty easy. You know, and then for the next three or four years, it was a contracting economy. 
Um, when I was at FX initially, the idea was we were going to launch three or four other channels that I was going to be able to help run um, some smaller digital cable nets. Those never got launched because really that period became a, how do you take a successful company that was growing and now all of a sudden the environment is, you know, the ad sales market, the, the floor is falling out. Um, you know, how do you keep your margins where they are? And so it became much more about managing cash flow than you know, growth, which was the, a, a huge sea change from you know, the last five or six years, right. which had been these incredible, you know, uninterrupted years of, of growth. Um, and so that, that was a, a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a shock to go from you know, one, uh, one direction so um, consistently all the way basically doing a U-turn into the other direction. Um, and so the, you know, the role at FX um, became um, a lot about you know, how do you manage the business, um, how do you manage costs, sure. and less about you know, conquering the world, which would... Right. So, I mean, that's a function of the, econ the economic cycle. And if there's tons of growth, you just throw money at, at problems and hope that they stick. And if on the other side, it's like, yeah, you got to cut costs, fire people, make, make hard decisions. Right. And so, you know, the, the, what I had gotten really good at was launching cable networks, was, you know, figuring out how to, um, you know, what, what is needed, what do you... Uh, What's the business plan for launching a new network? What's what niche is needed? What management is needed? You know, and um, shortly thereafter, the NFL uh, had made the decision that they were going to launch their own cable network, and so they needed to find people to come to come run that. So that timing was pretty good, and, and so I ended up leaving to go work for um, Steve Bornstein at the NFL, and that was you know. An amazing opportunity, and so I spent four years working for Steve and building out uh, NFL Network. Doing exactly what you know how to do: building a network. Yeah. So it was, you know, the the NFL was and still is an incredibly hallowed place. You know, very very smart people work there. People generally don't leave very often because it's a it's a great place to work. When I joined, uh, Paul Tagliabue was the commissioner. Um, you know, and he was this sort of mythical figure. Um, and, uh, you know, and Steve Bornstein, I'd read about my whole career yeah. as the, you know, the guy that made ESPN into ESPN. So, you know, coming into that environment was, was pretty exciting. Um, you know, so we, we, we built out NFL Network and, um, you know, had a, a grueling time uh, negotiating with cable operators who didn't think highly of the NFL because there was a clear bias on our part towards DirecTV. So um, having to navigate that was really tough. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I was out there trying to get distribution for a great product. And um, so we ended up having one of the most successful launches ever for um, a cable channel. Although I will say there were a lot of times where... I thought it wasn't going to work. Really? You know, you, you had a lot of people not taking phone calls and, um, you know, being, not mincing words and, and, and sharing their disappointment with past negotiations with the NFL and not really think 
thinking fondly or kindly. Um, yeah, so there were there were a lot of times where I was thinking, wow, this this really might not work. But ultimately, at the end of the day, through persistence and and even more so that we had, you know, an arsenal of great programming to put into the mix, we were able to to get uh, our distribution, which which was key. Uh, and then on the programming side. Um, a guy named Eric Weinberger and a guy named Charles Coplin put together really great programming. And uh, I think pretty quickly people started noticing, wow, this is, this is a great network. And not only that, but people were surprised that it, it wasn't a Barker channel. You know, there would actually be reporting that was fair and balanced in the sense that if the NFL had something that they might not have wanted anyone to really know about or think about it, we didn't shy away. Right. So I think that it, it, it came through as very organic, um, and uh, and I think that helped. Yeah, that certainly helps. I mean, I don't know if Bill Simmons is going to be on there talking about you know Roger Goodell, but but yeah, that that's helpful. When those types of things happen, you know, I sort of look back and, and think, it, you know, there are there are a couple incidents um, where where there has been pushback from the NFL, but that was more the exception than the rule. Sure. Um, so I have to, you know, I, sort of living that. But you know, there, there are those exceptions. Okay. So this is pretty cool. I mean, you're launching a brand new station for a very reputable brand. You're in L.A. You're working with legends of sports entertainment. This is this is this is great, right? So what what are you thinking? Is like, I'm going to become the president of you know NFL networks, or like, what are you thinking is going to happen? You know, I wasn't sure at the time. Um, I hired a great team, um, and there was really a lot of work to be done. And so I was really pretty focused on, um, you know, creating a, a network that was going to you know, rival ESPN mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of stature and viewership. And um, you know, the other thing that was happening is you were starting to see uh, technology become a factor. Um, and so it wasn't exact, you know, video on demand became a very big component of what we were doing at the time, and that was exciting. So I think um, it really started to pique my interest in, okay, you, you know, I've been working in television for this long, what's around the corner? Um, because when I first started, broadcast television was um, the crown jewel. You know, for Fox, the, the owned and operated television stations were the profit center. Uh, which you know seems crazy when you think back about it, but to me at the time, thinking about cable, you had a dual revenue model. You had advertising and you had affiliate revenue. You had one, uh, which so the revenue model was better. And then on the programming side, you had one consistent schedule that was the same coast to coast, as opposed to this idea of having local stations with you know, programming that when you went from market to market changed. It just seemed like a much cleaner and better model, and that, I think, ultimately proved true. Um, and one of the things that started to occur to me at, while I was at the NFL was, in the not-too-distant future, you're going to start to see a huge influx of choice, um, and not just from cable. You're going to have sort of unlimited amount of, of content that's going to be uh, available to people in different ways. Um, and you could tell it was still years away. The, the technology wasn't there to support that. Um, but it, it, you could see it was the beginning of a, a change in how uh, media consumers, sports fans in particular, but also media consumers in general, were going to start to uh, consume 
media, watch sports, interact uh, with the entertainment. Right. So not just the tent, tent pole events that are on the networks, but like other sports, cricket, bat, like whatever it is. I like to watch, you know, golf on Thursday afternoon. You can't watch that. Like no known channel is showing that. How do I how do I do that? So you're starting to see like choice. Yeah. I, I think also one thing that occurred to me, which really still hasn't gotten to where I think it's going to be at the time was, you know, my our whole lives, sports has really been about, um, you know, two commentators, a, a color commentator, a play-by-play guy, and, and some really uh, great uh, coverage with, you know, 10 cameras, a great director, um, and that's how you watch it. It's a, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's like a one-on-one experience unless you, you know, go to a sports bar. Um, and there, are, I, I think, you know, five, ten years from now, you're going to start to see people interact with sports in, in different ways. Right. Um, you know, if you look at Twitch and what people and how people are, you know, there's, I don't know if this is a word, but I say coterminous viewing. Um, you know, the other day, um, uh, Drake was uh, was on, and I think they had something like 500 or 600,000 concurrent people. On, uh, on on Twitch, and so I think the idea of social viewing um, is going to be very relevant. I'm, I'm jumping ahead now just because these types of ideas, I, I think, started started to enter your enter your conscience. Yeah, like what 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 is the future? Um, and uh, you know, the, the ability to pick your own camera angle and to have people call the games who weren't necessarily those people. I think a lot of those experiments failed. Yeah. A lot of I remember there was a, a Laker game where they had the Lakers the Laker wives be the commentators instead of uh, Chick Hearn, um, and I don't think it went particularly well. But you know, people people wanted people were experimenting. People were experimenting. I like what Tony Romo is doing right now. I think that's pretty cool. With with, with what specifically? With how he's how, you know just like the announcing style is just much different from anything that I've ever seen. And it's like a lot of times I mean football is different, but if I'm watching a random basketball game, I don't necessarily care that much what these guys are saying. I'd rather have the people I follow on Twitter making comments on the screen and seeing what's happening uh, like on like a second screen kind of thing like that versus... I think Twitter is a really powerful tool when it comes to sports because, you know, if, if it's well curated, exactly, to get those tidbits from people who really understand it at a, at a deep level. Because um, I think the people who are calling the games have an obligation to, you know, call what's happening. People who are not necessarily doing that have the freedom to. Um, right, I want to know like deep, interesting statistics about the, this guy has never done that. I mean, right. stuff that these guys just don't know. Or you know, little things that come out. So I, I think the ability to integrate all of those into uh, an experience is, is pretty exciting, and I think things are going to get towards that. Now, of course, this is pre-Twitter. I didn't um, imagine any of this, but these are some of the things. That okay, started. so that these are influencing your mindset, and you're thinking, I'm. Got to go. Got to go. Be part of the future now. Yeah, and around that time, um, a, a uh, somebody that I knew from high school, one of my very close friends, older brothers, had come to me with uh, an idea for a cable channel that I wasn't particular fond of, and and uh, instead said, "Hey, here's how I think you could actually um, create a, a business that's going to capitalize on the, the cable television revenue model." Um, and the idea was, and this is what the idea that I had back when I was uh, at Fox, which is, it was occurred to me that a lot of the local advertising time was going unsold. So 
on cable television, the majority of advertising time is sold nationally across the entire country. But the local cable operators and, and the broadcast model, broadcast model of the local stations get to sell a couple minutes per hour. And the, um, the people who would sell that were very experienced from the early days where there was uh, CNN and um, MTV and ESPN. But all of a sudden, now that digital cable was becoming reality, and instead of having 12 channels or 30 channels, you now had 100 channels, those other channels weren't getting a lot of attention. And so there was a lot of unsold time on, on really uh, highly rated cable networks, market by market. Um, and I also noticed there was a big disconnect with what people thought it would cost to buy that spot. So I would ask local businesses, what do you think it would cost to buy all of Beverly Hills, 8 o'clock prime time on TNT or MTV, and they'd say $5,000. You know, and the answer at the time was 12 bucks. Oh, so really? wow. there was such a disconnect in terms of the, the perceived value that I thought, wow, if you could create a demand with, to, to fill the, the unused supply, there was a business there. Um, and so I ended up um, co-founding a business, um, and I, initially I did not leave to go to operate it, um, but that business eventually was called Spot Runner, um, and so that was sort of s starting to scratch the itch um, in and around going and doing something that was beyond the way that we would, the way that Spot Runner worked was creating essentially prefab spots, so there'd be a pizza spot that you could rent essentially in your local market. You would customize it to fit your specific business. Um, and then you could buy uh, an advertising run, you know, for a hundred bucks. You could have basically have your own spot and uh, you know an array of spots air for a very affordable amount, which was a nice alternative to the yellow pages, which was the you know the primary um, spend at that point. Um, and so you know with with where, where the internet was and the the availability to present this to people. Um, you know, it, it was pretty interesting timing. And so um, I ended up uh, leaving the NFL and thinking I was going to go there full time. That didn't work out um, and um, did not end up uh, being an operator at Spotrunner, was stayed a consultant. Um, but it was a great experience. Spotrunner at one point, you know, had a, an enormous... Um, was enormously successful in, in, in creating a, a business, ultimately uh, was not able to sustain it, and ended up selling uh, years later for um, less than what it was at its peak. So, you know, there, it, was, it was a disappointment. I ended up having a, uh, an unfortunate situation with the co-founder where we had a very strong difference of opinion on a number of things, and it, it, it was a very troubling Situation and a relationship that um, you know it, it, it was not ideal would not have go, did not go as I would have planned it to go, but it's one of those experiences where you live and you learn. Right. So at the time, then, did you regret leaving the NFL? Um, it was you know when I left the NFL, it was the time to go. I, I sort of felt like I had done my work and my my role was stagnated. I think there was a mutual sense that, okay, I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. And so it seemed like um, a good time. Sure. And, you know, shortly after that, um, 
somebody in a somebody I knew at CAA who I highly respected came to me and said we're looking for uh, a vehicle to create um, to help our roster of talent um, be relevant in the digital space and so we sort of put our heads together and came up with the idea for digital artists which was a digital studio that would allow um, you know, anyone who was in the CA roster to um, create content or IP of any kind that they would then own. The idea being you can introduce it in a, in a format that's going to establish the characters, establish the story, um, and then in success you'll be able to then license that to more traditional distribution outlets. Stuff to live online? Yeah, so the way that I sort of used to explain it was, you know, if you think about Marvel is so successful because they created these characters in comic books. They didn't make a ton of money off the comic books, but then they, they owned Spider-Man, you know, yeah. similar. Well, that was some time before the transition from comic books to movies. They didn't, they didn't know it was going to be a movie exploitation. Which is probably why it worked. When, yeah. you, when you try to set out to replicate something, it doesn't, it doesn't usually go the way that somebody... A lot of podcast companies are trying to do that now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. Um, and so the idea was, if we could find success in digital, that would allow us to um, then exploit that IP across across other medium. And uh, it's interesting where I ended up having a lot of my success was, or we ended up having a lot of our success was in sports. I, you know, it's an area I knew well. Oh, really? And so I I pushed to. Um, create a relationship with Cristiano Ronaldo and CA Sports was, you know, and still is, you know, maybe the dominant sports agency. And so they had an, a phenomenal roster and I said, well, you know, why not start at the top? And he was, you know, he was a phenom. And what I liked about him is he had a, a fan base that was both male and female, right? Guys wanted to watch him play soccer, women wanted to watch him play soccer, but also liked him in the uh, in his underwear ads. Um, there was, he was definitely a superstar, a superstar in the making, if not already a superstar. And what we quickly learned is that he had no digital presence. He didn't have a Twitter account or a Facebook account or, uh, or a website. And so we were able to work out a deal where we managed the digital media, launched all of that. He and his management were incredibly involved. And we helped create content that drove those. So if you look today at his social media, um, he's far and away the most followed athlete. Um, you know, and I would say we were probably 10, 20% responsible for that. Obviously, it's, you know, um, it's a little bit like getting distribution for NFL Network. Right. You know, it's a good product. It's a good product. And uh, you know, he, they were, he and, and his team were great to work with. And... Um, you know, we got in early and we, we figured out what best practices were. We had great relationships at Facebook and they really helped. Um, and so, you know, that really became the, the crux of the business was um, athletes and teams and creating apps for them. You know, apps were exploding at the time and, um, and that's really what sort of the, the, pivot, the business pivoted into. So did any of this work? I mean, you see athletes and celebrities and stuff try to do this today. You see them try to leave their national distribution and try to go direct to consumer and do this themselves. And I don't see that ever working. But are you, you're, were they able to do it while they still had a national presence? 
So, you know, what's interesting, one of the ways that we wanted to monetize was, you know, once we had um, you know, tens of millions of, of followers, you know, we'd go to Nike and say, okay, we're going to do something with, with Nike and we're going to get you an incredible exposure. And they said, yeah, we're already, we already have a deal. Thank you very much. That's, yeah. That should be gratis. And so there was a bit of a transition period between that and, but it, it set the groundwork for future deals being able to say, and, you know, there'll be some, you'll, you'll have to contribute something if you want to be relevant in our social media. Sure. So I do think that for, you know, the top end, there is a, a very substantial ability, both in terms of monetization, as well as I think there's value to having a direct relationship with your, your fans and with Absolutely. your customers. Yeah. And, um, you know, people are still figuring out how to exploit that uh, and how to use that and how to be effective. Um, but the big thing in media right now, if you, you know, I don't know if you ever read Rich Greenfield, mm-hmm. you know, but his, his, if you had to sort of boil it down to a single point is we're entering a place where a middleman distribution company is, is going to find it very tough for the next several years. Um, and you're going to have to have a direct relationship with your consumer. And that's one thing that social media really started. Yeah. I, I worked for a company called Whale Rock. Oh, okay. That had this thesis and spent some money and trying to, a lot of money on trying to implement it. And it's just, it's tough. It's tough getting people to pay for content when they're also paying $100 for a cable bundle. Are you going to pay another $6 for Kardashians and the Dodgers channel and everything else, I guess, in an unbundled world, maybe. Today, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think, I, I totally agree. I think starting another, you know, mini distribution package is very, very challenging. Um, that said, if you have, um, you know, if, if you do have a platform, whether it be an app or, or whatever it is, um, especially one that's not based on a subscription model, you can be very effective in terms of uh, reaching your audience, delivering message to that audience, and potentially monetizing through ways other than subscription. Because I agree with you, people are already spending a lot of money. Yeah, um, it's hard. But you know, when you think about mini bundles going forward, you know, it's possible we end up at a world where everything's a la carte. You know, in that case, you will have wanted to have had a head start where at least you can reach out to your customers and, and reach them in in some way. Yeah, that'll be an interesting day if when. You know, you turn on your TV, and I guess kind of like Apple TV, but it just looks like your phone, and you have you pay exactly what you want to pay for. I don't know if it's going to be quite like that. People also, there's also something of bundles are easy and simple um, versus going and selecting all my content myself. But who knows? You probably know better than I know. But so you know, the thing is that one of the secrets we knew a long time ago was that the bundle is an incredible model. Everybody benefits in the bundle. The problem is people feel like they're paying for something they're not getting, and so there's this psychological, you know, fix to it. Um, it's really no different than if you pay for a gym membership and you decide not to go every day. Same thing, yeah. Um, so I, I actually think that uh, bundles are uh, incredibly effective. The challenge is, though, for for cable networks, I think it, it provided an incredible business model. And uh, I started saying around, I think around 2009, 2010, that we had peaked. Uh, the, the, you know, the idea of growing affiliates had peaked, that uh, it was not sustainable because you, you had too many ways of getting content where you didn't have to pay 100 bucks a month 
and that was going to start to really shave off. And I think I was a little bit early, but that really has come to fruition. Um, and I don't think it's so much that the bundle failed. It's that the bundle essentially was a monopoly. It was really the only way. If you ever wanted to be part of water cooler talk, you had, yeah. to, you had to subscribe. You know, nowadays, you know, there's Amazon, there's Hulu, there's obviously Netflix, there's YouTube, um, there's viral videos, there's so many different ways. And then within the content itself that's in the bundle, it's available outside of the bundle. So it's, it's, it's not the same place anymore. Um, you know, and, and things change over generations. We grew up, or at least I grew up, with the bundle. It's, it's something that would be very difficult for me to ever give up because it's, right. uh, it's so innate in, in how I think about consuming entertainment. Um, but, you know, if I was graduating college today, would I get a cable subscription? I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't have one. I cut the cord. Yeah. I still like, I mean, it's taken some time. I like coming home and just turning on the movie channels and stuff, but now I don't do that. Took a few months. My wife still hates it. <laughs> um, okay, Adam, we've been talking for a while. Now we got to start to wrap this up. So let's get to the conclusion, and then let's get to the advice piece of this where you look back and you tell your younger self, graduating college, what to go do in the world. Sure. So just to, to wrap up the professional career, you know, shortly after that, I ended up uh, starting a, a, a venture capital fund. And out of the venture capital fund, we incubated Sportal. Uh, which is sort of, it was a great culmination to the things I'd done in the past. And the idea was that sports fans who want to watch uh, games on digital devices like their phones couldn't find where those games were, didn't know if they had access to them. And the, the broadcasters who were airing these games and, and streaming them were having a tough time aggregating audiences because people weren't finding them. So there was a definite need for some sort of platform that uh, was a matchmaker who take the sports fan who wanted to watch the Roger, Roger Federer and Nadal match you know, and allow them to easily find how it was being, the French Open was being streamed or if they wanted to watch Major League Baseball playoffs on TBS and they thought it had been on ESPN or, you know, there's a lot of confusion. Uh, there's a lot of confusion in around, um, you know, in, in the earlier days, not everything was streamed, like selective stuff was. And so... Still. Yeah. So we set out and we set a platform that it was... Think of it as a very sophisticated, personalized electronic programming guide that lets you know everything, every sport you're interested in, whether it's domestic, international, primary, niche, um, and gives you a, a very customized feed of that particular, you know, whatever's on live. It's all about live. The idea being if, if there's a live game on, you don't want to TiVo it, you want to watch it live, you don't want to hear what the score is, and you have that game in your pocket. All you have to do is take it out. And, and the game's available to you, if in fact it was that easy just to turn it on. And that's what we set out to do. And we created a platform that allowed you sort of with one click to watch what was, whatever's on that, that was available to you. Um, and so that's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been a, a really fun career of, um, you know, the, the first half was defined by um, learning a lot with really, really smart mentors at big bureaucratic successful companies. Um, and then the latter half has been really scratching the entrepreneurial itch, um, taking everything that I learned and looking for why I think there's needs in the marketplaces and, and filling those needs. Um, you know, in, in terms of advice, one of the things I see is there's a lot of young people who um, come right out of school 
and say, hey, we're going to go start a business. Uh, and I love the chutzpah of going and doing that. And I think, you know, from a risk, a risk reward uh, point of life, I think it's a good time to do it in the sense that you have nothing to lose, right? It's not like you're giving up a huge salary to go start a company. That said, the downside is, you know, a, a lot of the most successful business people I know or, or people who had the good fortune to work for really smart people who taught them. And I think when you work for a big company, um, you, know, you, you learn about operations, you learn about interpersonal and politics, which I think is a, you know, it, it, people don't think about it a lot, but knowing how to maneuver politically within a big organization is something that's not innate, it's something that's learned. And um, when you, uh, another reason uh, that there's a lot of benefit to being at big companies early in careers is relationships. Especially when you start getting into to more, the more entrepreneurial space, being able to know who the CEO or president or, or head of business development at other companies proves really, really valuable. So, um, you know, if you know exactly what you want to do because you have, you have in mind the perfect idea, go chase it. Uh, if you want to start a business for the sake of, hey, I just want to go start a business, I would caution against that and say, maybe uh, go work for a company. If you can find a role, especially um, working for someone who's really smart, that I think would, would be something to, to carefully consider. The other piece of advice I would give is, is too many people I know, when they have multiple job offers or are looking for a job, will evaluate based on short-term compensation or what the short-term title is. And I, you know, People are, are, are a little bit myopic on that. And I think really the, the better way to look at it is, is look at it as a three to five year plan. And what's, how is your role going to evolve over that time? And where do you end up? Because I think a lot of times you know, people like the, the sexiness of a title or you know, perhaps it's a, it's a really good salary. Um, and this a little bit goes back to the idea that we started with, with which was this is not a race. So if if you take a more holistic approach to what is this career move going to do, think about okay if, if I if I work for this person or if I work for this department within this company, given their growth trajectory, what is this going to look like in three to five years, and that's what you should evaluate on those different choices. That's fantastic. I love the advice. It's always easier to go from a big company to a small company. Fantastic. Adam, this was a lot of fun speaking with you. Thanks a lot for doing it. My pleasure, Alex. Really, really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening today. If you liked Moving Up, the best way you can support us is by telling your friends, helping us grow, and by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks.